0: Welcome back, everybody, to the second episode of the Last of Us Nerds podcast, the first one recapping the show itself. I am your host, one of your hosts, Jacob. Joining me, as always, is Tom. We're going to be talking today about the pilot episode, When You're Lost in the Darkness. Before we jump into that, for those of you that didn't listen to last week's episode, uh, just a quick kind of Cliff Notes version. Uh, I, like I said, I'm Jacob. Tom joining me. We are two huge fans of The Last of Us game. Nerds of the game, you could even say. And we decided to make this podcast to just discuss something that we love so much on a week-to-week basis. We're going to have spoiler, non-spoiler parts. Tom will explain all that. But uh, the genesis is that we're we're coming at this from kind of a place of passion, loving the games throughout the years, uh, and now getting a chance to watch the show itself is exciting. So we thought we would uh, each week discuss what we think of the TV show, how it compares to the game, the changes they made, things like that along the way. Tom, first off, uh, hello, and let everyone know kind of what these episodes are going to look like now that we're actually into recapping the show.
1: Hello, hello. So I'm so excited to be here once again. So I want to make one thing abundantly clear from the jump. This is a podcast that is going to be safe for people that do not know the plot of the game and are watching along the show week to week, uh, experiencing this story for the first time. Uh, we have a deep passion for the story, which is why we're doing this podcast. We're going to be discussing the show as an adaptation we will provide highlights and insights of some of the most notable changes from the source and material, but most of the discussion week to week semi be focused on the story, the characters, and the particular episode that we're on. So first, we'll give our general impressions of the episode, overall thoughts and feelings. Then we're going to dive deep on the story and characters, breaking down what happened this week with the plot, character analysis, and along the way, point out some of the interesting ways the show is adapting or changing the source material. Uh, at the end of the podcast, we have uh, a, a, a few fun things to do, and then we're going to have a clear spoiler break for people that are not uh, familiar with the plot of both The Last of Us in 2013 and The Last of Us Part 2 from 2020. Um, at that point on, we are going to be full speculating based on our knowledge of the game in terms of what to expect going forward, what we think is going to happen next, go a little bit further than we would for the first part of the audience into some more Easter eggy detail uh, in terms of more specific changes from the game that we thought were fun or interesting. Uh, and at the end of the Edge episode, we'll have some awards to give out. So, first things first, what did we think about this episode? Jacob, why don't you talk to me a little bit about how you felt watching uh, this episode? Did you like it?
0: I loved it. It was a long, long time we had to wait for this. They announced it multiple years ago. Not just waiting since then, waiting since we knew... Since the trailers, since the release dates, the last few weeks as more interviews have come out, the last week as reviews have come out, my expectations were sky high and even then they surpassed it. This was absolutely incredible. I've seen, I mean, as a as a fan of the game, obviously this was incredible. I've seen kind of reactions from people who are not or have not played the game that seemed to go in line with that as well. That This was just a fantastic show, a fantastic pilot that, man, I am so excited about where the next month and a half, two months is going to take us. The amount of details they added without getting into the specifics is what probably blew me away most about this, but uh, I absolutely loved it and just cannot wait to to watch more of it.
1: Yeah, I think... In terms of what you want out of an adaptation, they nailed it because, and granted, we reserve the right to change our mind if future things we don't like, but what they seem to be doing in a very thoughtful way is giving us all the core important moments that fans of the story want and would be annoyed if they didn't see while still having so much more room to explore interesting different choices that they can make along the way uh, to flesh something out, to try something different, to uh, expand on a character's motivations some more or rethink a certain aspect of it. Uh, I'm so much more excited to see what is different going forward after this first episode because I I think we can feel pretty safely assured now that they're not going to mess up the most important, crucial things that we would have wanted to see as fans. And and that's what's so exciting to me.
0: I just didn't... Ex- Did you expect this level of difference from the game? Like, we had 35 no. minutes of the, the episode dedicated to Outbreak Day that... Um, I would say 75% of that just didn't exist in the game.
1: For sure. And, and especially I had seen some things in reviews about how, like... They're super faithful to the game, but some of the best moments are when they branch out and, and make different decisions. But I, um, they, it's a tricky line to walk. And at least in this first episode, I, I feel like they did it really well while providing some really interesting and new things that we're excited to talk more in detail about while still giving us what made The Last of Us, The Last of Us. And that's a, a really fun place to be.
0: On the note of changes we're going to start off breaking down this episode with a part that was not that was created just for the show so tom give us the synopsis of the prologue's prologue
1: yeah so part one right it's fungus so in 1968 scientists are on a television talk show one where they were still smoking cigarettes Uh, discussing their fears of whether certain types of microorganisms pose an existential threat to humanity. They briefly discuss the idea of a pandemic, one that could jump from Madagascar to Chicago, spreading from coughing, spread through the air, humans spreading it on planes. But Dr. Newman is not most scared of a virus nor bacteria, but rather a fungus. He says, quote, Viruses can make us ill, but fungi can alter our very minds. They allude to cordyceps, which is a very real fungus, that can control the minds and behaviors of ants, for example. Uh, One doctor dismisses the idea that this could happen to humans, and Dr. Newman admits that currently, in the 1960s, there would be no reason for a fungi to have to survive a temperature as high as the human's body temperature, but what if the Earth were to get hotter? Uh, The fungi would have a reason to evolve. And even worse, Dr. Newman shares the more disturbing forecast that should a fungi be able to evolve in this way, we would not be able to stop it. Jacob, what did you think of this very new uh, change? Uh, This is not in the game at all. This is something completely invented for the show. This little prologue in the 60s.
0: Yeah, Craig May's creation for this. I think it did a couple of things to... It served a, a very real purpose. I mean, for one, if you're doing a show in 2022 about an outbreak... There's a pretty big elephant in the room with COVID. So I think in some aspects, this kind of addressed that elephant in the room about COVID and a airborne virus and, and all that. It hit a little close to home, but I think that's just kind of going to be the nature of these types of shows for probably ever for those of us that went through COVID. But I also thought it was, I mean, if we're talking about hitting close to home, it having a a disease spread because of kind of alluding to global warming. It also hits a little close to home with, um, the, the world warming up and, and fungi having to adapt. And that's what leads to this outbreak. Like you said, it, it wasn't something in the game, but I mean, right off the bat, we see something that is new to the show. That is a great addition. It, it kind of sets the stage for what this, how this disease comes about and all while doing it in a way that you, I mean they immediately address kind of the elephant in the room in the first, I don't know, three, four, five minutes of the show.
1: Yeah, and I I think it did a couple of things that were very interesting. So obviously, I, I think you could feel Craig Mason's fingerprints all over this. This is probably the most Chernobyl uh this, the most Chernobyl scene I would have to think that the show's ever gonna have. Um, but it was really interesting in a way that it it primes the audience for what's going to happen, the outbreak. Um, it does a way to make it a little bit more interesting and differentiate it from just another zombie story. Um, trying to set itself apart in that way a little bit earlier. Uh, because I, I do think some people have an earned zombie fatigue. Uh, and this was a good way to sort of set their expectations that it's going to be slightly different. Um, I'm sure there's someone that's already super mad about the global warming part. I don't think they're trying to make this show about global warming part. It's just a, a fun little thing to put in the back of the mind of what what if humans could cause something like this as well. Uh, it makes it a little bit more topical uh, in today's day and age. Uh, but overall, I just thought it was a really interesting way to to start off the show, to put the audience a little bit on edge for the second part uh, of Outbreak Day.
0: The challenge, as you kind of said, with like zombie fatigue is making it feel like this type of outbreak is possible. And they did that in a number of ways. Like like I, the show isn't about global warming, but I mean, that is how they kind of allude to how this happens, which feels real. And as you said, cordyceps is real. So like, there's a lot of things in this that, Hit close to home, and that this is all very theoretically possible. It sets a, a kind of an ominous tone too from the from the get go. That all of this is very possible and could happen one day. And as we see in the show, it does happen on Outbreak Day. Before we get your thought or get your synopsis on Outbreak Day, after the prologue's prologue, we get the credits, the opening credits. I am not. As much of an intro guy necessarily as i know you are i watched i would watch the game of thrones intro a couple times and then just skip right over it most of the time there is no chance i am ever skipping over this last of us intro
1: well first of all i'm, I'm shocked and appalled that you skipped the game of thrones intro credits that was also a great one but it, no the intro credits were amazing uh, we have to shout out uh, gustavo Santolala i hope i'm pronouncing that correctly i believe i am who was the original composer on the last of us and the last was part two they brought him back for the show. They use a lot of the same themes. Uh, this theme that plays over the credits is almost the exact same uh, musical arrangement that is played in the game. We get it at different parts. In the game, we get it after the end of Outbreak Day uh, when tragedy strikes. And, and here we're getting it before that because obviously they spend a lot more time on Outbreak Day than, than they do that. But if we if we were doing... An over under on when Tom would have first teared up uh, on the show, the the un the under betters uh, would have <laughs> thrived because they did the prologue. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And the credits hit, and that music kicks in, and just immediate reaction uh, in my eyes. And 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 part of that is is just you know I've I've been listening to that music for for so long, and obviously we have a deep emotional attachment to it. But also part of it is. When that music, that same theme plays in the game, something very tragic had just happened before that. And obviously, like we talked about, we'd spent a lot of time watching other people's reactions to that. So that's the music that's playing as we're watching other people process all that. Uh, We just have some very deep emotions tied to that music. I thought it was perfect. I love the little fungal animations they did with the credits, especially at the end when the two little itty bit tendrils turn into what, uh, what are clearly resembling Joel and Ellie. Walking down a road, I thought it was it was perfect. I thought it was great, um, and uh, yeah, no, I'm I'm not skipping that.
0: Yeah, it got a little bit of a, uh, a gasp from me when I realized what the song was, and perfect choice, perfect guy to have in charge of the score. Very excited for that part alone. But after we see Joel and Ellie, we cut to Outbreak Day. Talk us through part two, the prologue of Last of Us.
1: The year is 2003. And in Austin, Texas, we meet Joel, Sarah, and Tommy Miller. Joel, who's played by Pedro Pascal, is a single dad working a blue-collar construction job. Sarah, who's played by Nico Parker, is his teenage daughter. And Tommy, played by Gabriel Luna, is Joel's little brother, and to Sarah, her uncle Tommy. Uh, They're clearly very close. They lean on each other to get by. It's Joel's birthday, and Sarah takes Joel's broken watch and some money from his desk to go get it fixed. She doesn't have any money to actually buy him a nice gift, but she can take the time to do something for her dad that she knows he won't take the time to do for himself. So Joel actually ends up working until 10 p.m. on his birthday. After school, Sarah gets Joel's watch fixed at a local shop. As a woman rushes the shopkeep to, to finish up and close the shop early, she urges Sarah to go home. As Sarah borrows a DVD from their neighbor's shelf. A wheelchair-bound Nana, the the grandmother of the neighbors, begins to twitch and lurch. A very good dog named Mercy is staring and softly whining at Nana, and Sarah leaves, uneasy. When will people learn to trust the dogs? We'll, We'll discuss that later, but Joel gets home late. Sarah has been waiting for him. She gives him his birthday gift. His watch is fixed, and they fall asleep on the couch watching Curse and Viper 2, a cheesy action movie. Joel geeks out over this being the version with, this, with the deleted scenes. Uh, Sarah falls asleep. Joel gets a call. Tommy's in jail. Not for the first time, it seems, but it swears he swears it was not his fault this time. We can later infer that an infected had started attacking a waitress, and Tommy had stepped in and knocked him out. Joel carries Sarah to her bed and leaves to go bail Tommy out of jail. Two hours later, Sarah wakes up to various noising. Noises. Things are escalating. Helicopters are overhead. Dogs are barking. An emergency alert urging people to stay inside is being played on the TV, and Mercy the dog is begging for Sarah to let him in. Ever the good neighbor, Sarah tries to get Mercy back to his home, but he refuses to go and ends up running away. Sarah walks in to find that Nana is now an infected, a zombie-like creature that was theorized in that 1968 prologue, a human body controlled by a cordyceps, a parasitic fungus Which is intent on attacking humans with the goal of spreading the infection to every viable host. The previously borderline vegetative Nana has sprung up, in some ways, has been healed by this infection at the cost of something much greater. She's killed her family and is running towards Sarah next. Sarah runs out to the street. Joel and Tommy arrive in the truck. Tommy's armed with a rifle, Joel's armed with a wrench. And as Nana sprints towards Joel, he does not hesitate, killing Nana, his first infected with the wrench. As they're about to take off in the truck, Joel tells another neighbor, Denise, to get in the house and lock her doors. Joel drives through an infected in the street. Denise, oblivious, runs out to help the infected that just got run over, thinking her neighbor just ran over someone in the street. And needless to say, she's not going to be in the last of a season, two. <laughs> the Millers frantically drive, trying to find a way to get out, leave Austin, go anywhere. But Sarah asks the right question. What do they do if it's everywhere? They drive by a family with a kid who are begging them to stop the truck and help them. Tommy thinks they should stop. They got a kid, Joel. So do we. Keep driving. Sarah knows they had room in the back of the truck. Somebody else will come along, Joel says. He's not going to risk it. The highway they're trying to get to is jammed, and people are driving the wrong way. Desperation intensifies. They try off-roading to get to the highway, but there's a full-on military blockade. They drive north, their only option left to a crowded part of the suburb with nowhere else to go, and it's chaos. Infected are everywhere. Things are on fire. People are running and screaming in the streets before a large airliner crashes into the street. The truck crashes. Sarah's ankle is too hurt to walk on, and Tommy gets separated, needing to find another way around. Joel frantically carries Sarah in his arms, running from an infected, until a soldier shoots it down. Finally, they've gotten to the highway, and they think they're safe, but they're wrong. This was outbreak day, the day it all went wrong. And the military is not interested in protecting one or two human lives. They're not even interested in protecting the entire population of Austin, but rather containing the outbreak. If need be, eliminate the few to save the many. Joel pleads that they aren't sick, but the soldier fires his assault rifle. And Joel and Sarah topple to the ground. The soldier doesn't want to do it, but he's following his orders. He walks to an injured Joel and says that he's sorry while lining up a killing blow. But Tommy and his rifle get there first, shooting the soldier and saving his big brother's life. But if Tommy hadn't shown up, Joel would have been spared the ultimate pain that would go on to define the rest of his life. Sarah's been fatally shot in the abdomen. She's not going to make it. You're going to be okay, Joel lies to his daughter and to himself. He tries compressing the wound. He tries getting her up, it's not working. She's in pain, she's dying, and he can't fix it. He has her look away from the wound, just as he had her not look at the infected. Joel is living his worst nightmare, and it has nothing to do with the creepy fungal zombies. He could not protect his daughter. Tommy is motionless, accepting what Joel has not yet. Tommy, help me, Joel cries, but it's too late. She's
0: already gone. Heartbreaking. (laughs) Like, it, it is unbelievably powerful no matter how many times i watch it whether a game whether on the tv show let's start back at the beginning of that we're introduced to the millers right away and you kind of see the family dynamic this trio really has this uh unique kind of family that they have with joel tommy and sarah they're all codependent on one another it's Sarah that wakes up first to to wake her dad up to tell him that his alarm's going off. He slept through it in a way that you can tell she's had to do that before. Um, she's the one making breakfast. It is it is his birthday. And you then see Tommy come in talking. And Joel even mentions it. He, he doesn't love me. He depends on me. There's a difference. Kind of joking with him. It's all those kind of little things that we didn't see in the game, certainly not nearly to this degree. So it's a very interesting look at how this little family lives day to day.
1: Yeah. And we get so many examples of their codependence on each other. You you mentioned those, but there's also Tommy clearly needs Joel for structure and support. Tommy's Joel's clearly had to bail Tommy out of jail before. (laughs) That's a problem. We got to work on that, Tommy uh tommy and sarah exchange similar looks to the idea of joel working straight through his birthday uh tommy and joel are oblivious to what jakarta is sarah is the book smart one and tommy's like oh there's hope for us yet uh (laughs) but she also will do things like forgetting to lock the door when she leaves the house or leaving eggshells in the eggs when they're cooking so it's a very interesting dynamic um that I, i i'm glad we got to spend a little bit of time with and i think that idea it's obviously something that this story is very interested in exploring of. Can you be codependent on other people for a long period of time without loving them? Is that what love is? Uh I think that's, so those are some very interesting ideas that we'll probably have more to say about later. Um, But I, I, I love this dynamic between the family and I love that we got to spend uh, more time with them.
0: You see how independent Sarah is, has to be. Within this kind of family dynamic, she's the one cooking breakfast. She's the one who told her dad to go get pancake mix that he forgot. She's the one that takes the watch into town to fix. She's just this very sh- like strong, independent 12-year-old. <laughs> like uh, She's had to be because of the... The situation she's in, you get a little foreshadowing at breakfast of Joel kind of glancing at where his watch should be on his wrist. That watch is is very important uh, in in the story moving forward. It's always on his wrist from that night forward, and you see it later on in the show when Ellie tells him it's broken. But it's always there. But it, it is a great look at this 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 fun little unique little family that they have. That, again, you you don't see in the game. We're then introduced to the infected. First, I have to say, the scene of Nana Adler being infected behind Sarah as she's looking for a movie was unbelievable. One of my favorite shots of the episode. Just this woman who you've seen a couple times is very clearly wheelchair bound, cannot move, basically, for her to move in the way that the zombies eventually do in the background as Sarah's looking for Curtis Viper, Curtis and Viper two, uh, it, it is unbelievable. Just great cinematography, just great film work. And it, uh, is incredible to see again, another addition to the show, but this is our first introduction to what the virus is or the disease is in the show. There's a, a notable difference between the game and the show. In the game, it is spores, and it can be airborne. And in the show, it is tendrils, which is kind of more of a hive mind type of thing. We don't know a lot about it yet. I'll first ask, just what do you think of that change? In, I mean, we see it with Nana later on with the tendrils kind of coming out of her mouth.
1: I overall like it. Uh, I think it, it accomplishes a, a few different reasons. One, going back to making, making them different than a lot of zombies we've seen before. It is gross. It is creepy. It is scary. Um, I, I think, uh, obviously, obviously when, when talking about COVID, probably one reason they didn't want to have to do spores is they probably didn't want to constantly remind people of, um, this deadly virus that you'd be inhaling that, uh, you know, if you, if you get it, you might start coughing. Um, but yeah, in the game you can inhale uh, this. And, and sorry, I shouldn't say virus. is not a virus. It's a it's a fungus, right? Uh, but I think I think that's a smart change. Uh, I think that's a very interesting visual change for us to us to see. Um, we're only getting the first type of infected in this episode. And I'm sure we'll get more very soon. But that Nana looked scary. She looked creepy. It was a pretty scary choice to have the first infected we meet be someone that was wheelchair bound. It, again, I I don't want to assume what her conditions were, but obviously she wasn't all there. She was pra- practically vegetative. Um, to see that body uh, lurch forward in the, in the way that it does when the infect is in action was quite an interesting choice. Um, but it, we also did find a, interesting theory from Reddit that we think is probably correct. Now this is not, this is in our non-spoiler section because this is not based on any game knowledge whatsoever. This appears to be a show thing, but people have deduced that And if you don't want to hear anything, go ahead, skip forward 60 seconds. This is just a theory for what we think the infection started the infection. Basically, we think it might be based on flour or some type of wheat or grain that got contaminated. In the game, we get a very brief uh, snippet of a newspaper that Sarah grabs as she's walking through the house saying that this infection might be tied to contaminated crops. Um, and there's just too many coincidences in this episode that have the main characters avoiding any objects with flour. I want to shout out an Anagnost, I believe, is the name on Twitter. Uh, Sarah has no flour for pancakes, so they make eggs. They refuse the biscuits that the neighbors are offering them. Joel claims he's on the Atkins diet. Couldn't tell if that was true or if that was something he just said to avoid having to go over there and talk to the neighbors. Uh, Sarah doesn't take any cookies because of the raisins. Joel forgets to get a birthday cake. Um, and then at, at one point, the the mom neighbor was like spoon feeding Nana something. And she's like, oh, you like it? It's green. I'm like, what are you spoon feeding her? That's green. Uh, so I was wondering if it was a like contaminant crop there. Um, and then in the official... Inside the, or excuse me, in the official HBO podcast with Troy Baker, Craig Mazin, and Neil Druckmann, they mentioned there's a lot of breadcrumbs in the first episode that might pay off later. So that seems like a pretty good theory.
0: It just so happens the world's largest flour mill is in Jakarta, which is, we hear on the radio is where things are going south, to say the least.
1: I had not even seen that part yet. That, wow, okay, there you go. So, yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Uh, I love that little detail.
0: Pretty good shot that that is how the virus or disease fungus starts back to the story. I have to note, I forgot to Mrs. Adler saying three nails plus one cross equals four given got an audible laugh out of me because a hundred percent. My mom had a shirt that said that on it, a great choice to show what this virus can do. And as you kind of said, almost heals her. And then she is chasing Sarah down. So A powerful way to show how dangerous this virus is let's talk a little bit about joel because we get a lot of small details early on to key us in on who joel is uh i mean he very clearly keeps a a close small circle we only ever see him kind of talking to tommy and sarah the neighbors outside but outside of that i mean there's It doesn't seem like he has any friends. Nobody's kind of reaching out to him. There's no party scheduled for his birthday. In terms of that close circle, there's nobody he trusts to split the job with other than Tommy, even if it means that he's going to have to work like a double shift and some basically by the end of the day. So he keeps this very tight knit circle, which is a theme that's going to carry on throughout the rest of the show as it did throughout the game. There was no hesitation for him having to work straight through his birthday either. So this very kind of focused kind of one track mind type of guy that I mean, he's got to provide and he's going to do kind of whatever it takes to do so.
1: And I think the moment that most clearly showed you where Joel's compass is at is when they pass the hitchhikers on the road. This is a moment straight from the game. That they pass these people on the road, and it's not even a question for Joel. He doesn't. He doesn't stop to think for a second. Okay, what do these guys need? Uh, you know, maybe we should see if they're okay. He is in full protector mode. He's not going to risk anything. They have a car. They have the three of them in there. They're not going to stop for anything. That shows you where his moral compass is at. That shows you where his priorities are at. And I think it's so interesting that the other two characters in the car, are like what, but, like we should see what they need. They have a kid. And Joel is is solely focused on protecting his daughter and his brother, Uh, but it's it it, it's not even it's not a moral quandary for him. There's no decision to be made. It's already been made for him because that's that's just who he is. He's not going to risk that. I think that does such a good job of, of showing you who Joel is, very early on.
0: Yeah, as I wrote down, he protects his like if you're in that that small circle, he has you, and that we see with his. Thoughts on the hitchhikers. And on that note of passing them by, we get kind of one of the iconic sequences from the game with them in the car trying to find a way out, driving down the country roads, trying to get on the interstate, trying to drive through a town. It all ends up the same in the long run, but there were some differences in uh, parts of this i'll ask you what aspects from kind of the game do you think they did well with this specific kind of i don't want to call it a car chase but this scene in the car
1: pretty much the whole thing is is almost straight from the game this truck sequence this is obviously the most impressive action sequence that they've done uh so far very early on through one episode but i have to imagine this is going to rival anything they do uh throughout the rest of the the show in terms of pure action but They did it very well. I I had a couple people that say this almost felt kind of like a video game of of just the perspective you had in the car, but it was such a cool, they had a a one shot going for a long time there. It was such a really interesting perspective of the action sequence of you're just on this one shot. You're in a car, you're moving fast. Lots of stuff is happening as you're seeing it. There's zombies in the streets. Nope, that's not working. We got to back up. Oh, there's, there's a plane behind us. We got to go forward. Um, it did such a good job of capturing the chaos that uh, that was happening, uh, obviously on outbreak day, and and what would happen in that type of situation. But it, yeah, I, I thought they crushed that.
0: My favorite part of it is that so much of it took place in the back seat, like it did in the game. That's not a game spoiler. In the game, you also basically have the exact same viewpoint of the entire scene where you're sitting. Basically, seeing what Sarah is seeing looking out the front of the car, which is a, a great way to show you how tense the whole situation is of them trying to find a way out and they're not being one, basically.
1: Yeah, and we should say so, in this first part of the game, one thing they do really well is showing us everything in the show from Sarah's perspective because she is the first POV character we get in the game. She's the first person you control. You wake up as Sarah probably around that 2 a.m. mark equivalent in the show of when things are starting to happen. And they do a great job of effectively making her the protagonist for this prologue, which is the case for uh, for the game. So I thought they did an excellent job of of uh, building that over. Uh, we should know this is probably the biggest difference is just how much time we got before shit started to hit the fan with the family. That's by far, I would say, the biggest difference in the Austin uh, sequence is just getting to spend more time. Pretty much everything that happens from Joel coming home and giving the watch to Sarah is almost straight from the game. Uh, and they did that in, in such a good way. And that's one of the most iconic moments from this original story was that first 20 minutes or so of gameplay where you, you briefly get introduced to, to Joel and Sarah. You see their dynamic. Shit hits the fan. They try to get out, uh, ending in, in in Sarah's death. Uh, so I, I think we got we got to talk about that moment. It's the big moment of the episode. In some ways, it's one of the big moments of the series, Sarah's death. We again should obviously note that this was such a, a, a Keystone iconic moment from the source material that if they would have gotten this wrong or if it would not have hit as hard as it does in this 2013 PS3 video game a lot of people would have been really upset and we got to say they nailed it. Yeah. They, they, they captured what that moment was and all the important beats of it. Um, and it's, they, they, they crushed that and they had to, it, it, Pedro Pascal. That's what gives me more confidence than anything is, is, is him in that moment. Nico Parker. We should shout her out again. Found out she's Sandy Newton's daughter. Didn't know that, uh, before like yesterday. That's interesting. You can see it. She looks a lot like her, but, all the performances in this prologue were amazing. Also, Gabriel Luna as Tommy literally sounds exactly like the, the like uh, Jeffrey Wright did in the game. He's, he sounds perfect, and he's from Austin, so that's, that accent obviously comes very naturally to him. But, Jacob, how did you feel reliving that moment once again?
0: This is my uh, Molotov hot take. This, I think, is perhaps a more powerful death than in the game. Sarah's death in the show is more powerful than it is in the game. Because of what we've been saying, you get 35 minutes with Sarah, with Joel, with Tommy. You build even more of a bond with these people. And then to have it ripped away the way it is, like, it's brutal. It is heartbreaking. Hats off to to Nico Parker. Um, this was a, a tough role to play because you're going to get half of a show to half of an episode to make us fall in love with you. As you said, she's the main protagonist for the first 35 minutes of this show. And then she gets ripped away from us is what makes this so heartbreaking. And it's unexpected. It, it, it hurts no matter, but I, I mean, it hurts no matter if you expect it or not. Like it, it's just, they absolutely nailed it. As you said, they this is one of those things that they had to get right uh, from the game. It was a home run. They hit it out of the park. There was a lot of callbacks during the whole scene. Uh, we'll talk about those a little bit later. But everything about this was great. And it connected. It, it connected in a way, I think, like I said, was more powerful than the game itself so it was expertly done it sold me on everybody i i didn't need to be sold anymore but as you said uh the tommy and joel were incredible in this scene nico is unbelievable uh just all around hats off to all of these all three of these because this is a Difficult scene that I told you I can't imagine. This is the type of scene I can't imagine doing multiple takes on. Uh, And the the way these three nail it, that that's a moment they had to get right. And they did.
1: So we go from there. Just a a small time jump. Uh, (laughs) 20 years later, uh, we jump from 2003 to 2023 alternate present day from Austin, Texas to Boston, Massachusetts. Humanity is still around. Barely. A young boy gets infected and is euthanized by FEDRA, who's a military regime imposing martial law that is currently in control of the Boston Quarantine Zone. An older, grayer Joel is doing various work for ration cards, the currency of this zone. His coworker is unable to throw the body of the infected, euthanized boy into the fire. It's too much for her. She taps Joel on the shoulder. Joel does it without issue. He doesn't seem to dwell on it. You can see signs are lining the street with warnings of signs of infection, consequences for breaking curfew or any laws. Hint, it's execution. Uh, we immediately see public executions are happening for unauthorized exit and to and uh, exit from an entry to a quarantine zone. Joel meets Lee, who's played by Max Montesi, who is a dirty cop Federal soldier who's buying opioids off Joel, who we learn is a smuggler in Boston. They also have a deal to get Joel a truck to get out of Boston. He already knows he has a deal in place for the battery warns Joel to stay off the streets for the next few nights because the Fireflies, a revolutionary group, which is looking to restore democracy and reclaim some previous semblance of society. And Fedra, who is again is that military regime, are openly engaged in armed conflict. We meet Joel's partner slash boss, Tess, who is now played by Anna Torv, who is another hardened survivor who's being detained by Robert, a ponytailed fuckboy who stole the car battery that Joel needed Uh, To someone else. His goons have battered Tess, and Robert is afraid to let Tess go because he is scared of what Joel will do to him. Tess promises she won't have Joel hurt Robert, and Robert agrees to let her go just as an explosion blows up the room from the conflict, and Robert runs away. We find out that Joel has not heard from Tommy, who is still alive via radio, who is all the way in Wyoming. Uh, He hasn't heard from him in three weeks. He's convinced that Tommy will be dead if he does not get to him. He needs that truck, and he needs that battery to go find his brother. We see Joel plodding away west out on a map. He mixes some pills with alcohol before going to sleep and clearly dreaming about that awful night 20 years ago, the night that continues to haunt him. Tess comes in late, joins him in bed, and in the morning, Joel is immediately upset by the appearance of Tess's battered face. Tess is expecting this reaction. She asks him to calm down before telling him the whole situation. Clearly, she knows Joel well and knows that he will be protective, knows of his apparent issues with regards to this type of stuff. And and Tess says, quote, I promised Robert that you wouldn't hurt him, but I would very much (laughs) like for you to hurt him. And they head out to hunt Robert down. So one interesting tidbit here is... And, and we actually misled our dear listeners in the last episode when we said we thought that this was a ten episode season, which it initially was. and we find out on the official last was podcast that the the moment where we cut to twenty years later and Joel is dumping the kid in the fire is apparently where they initially cut the first episode. I, I, mean, I guess we get like one shot of Ellie glancing out the window, and that's pretty much it. Um And apparently the executives at HBO gave him some feedback that, Hey, this is great. And the rest of the show is great, but this first episode might not leave you wanting to come back. That's kind of depressing with, you know, not much uh where to go from there. And obviously the last of us is a very sad and tragic show, but I thought that was a very interesting tidbit. uh Jacob, what would what, you think of the first segment of Boston quarantine? So
0: I mean, you're immediately shown the brutality of the situation with this, young child they find wandering around that is then dumped into a a burning pit by Joel. And you see the reality of what Joel has become as well, that he is just kind of this hardened version of himself. he He has no problem dumping this body into the fire because his mindset is basically do whatever it takes to survive. And this is what it takes. He has to work through this type of stuff day in and day out. He doesn't care. I mean, he he signs up to work in the sewers, basically. He doesn't really care what the job is. It's just whatever helps him stay alive.
1: This show does a lot of good examples uh, through one episode of, of Show Don't Tell, which is obviously a classic storytelling, uh, you know, tenant rule, the guideline to live by. But just that that notion of that simple act of Joel just casually picking up A body of a dead kid and and dumping it in the fire they obviously thought long and hard about that and that's probably the single best way in a short amount of time they could clearly convey that joel's changed this is this is not he's still there but this is not the same guy that we just met before this time jump uh he is hardened he has closed himself off uh he doesn't want to get hurt again by those feelings and, and it's just easier to be this way Pedro obviously had a very different type of performance in this part versus in, in, in the, in the prologue in Austin. He looks traumatized. At times he looks like he's in deep pain. and At other times his expression is almost a little vacant, like he's just not 100% there because he's distracting himself in his mind. You know, the fireflies say in, in this episode title, when you're lost in the darkness, you look for the light. And Joel's cool with the darkness, man. He's like, "Nah, you know what? It's, it's nice here. It's comfy. We got some shade. Uh, I found a a life here that has kept me closed off and alive, and I I don't have to think about that very much, uh, except for when I go to sleep. He is completely closed off.
0: We also obviously learn about the quarantine zone, the QZ, where it is positioned as Fedra versus the Fireflies. The Fireflies are referred to. I mean, even Ellie calls them terrorists at one point. That's kind of how the the people in the QZ are are. are it's what they're teaching them about the Fireflies, that they're the bad guys and Fedra are the good guys. It's up for interpretation, <laughs> as we'll see throughout the show, but it's a very, I mean, it's martial law. There, There's executions for leaving the quarantine zone, for illegally coming into the quarantine zone. Like, there are very strict rules that these people have to live by, and we also learn that, Joel and Tommy aren't together anymore. Tommy is not in this quarantine zone. But Joel is urgently trying to get in contact with Tommy. There's some sort of falling out that has happened between the two of them. Tommy is all the way in Wyoming now, and Joel is trying to message him. Uh, It had been quite some time, I think three weeks, since he last heard from him. And we, we find out toward the end of the show that Joel blames Marlene in the Fireflies for turning his brother against him. It's it's a very different kind of situation Joel finds himself in in the quarantine zone. He is shut off from everyone in that close circle that he has or had, I should say, isn't even like even that doesn't exist at this point. The only person he's letting in really right now is Tess, who we find out again is a, his partner, the the, per, the probably one person he trusts. At this point in his life. What are your thoughts as Anna Torva's Tess as we uh, are introduced to her here in the QZ?
1: She seems great. Uh, she, she uh, Tess is a badass, uh, which was well-established in the game, but it's, uh she has a very fun uh, performance here. Uh, I think she's, she's going to be a very interesting character to watch going forward. The Tess and Joel relationship is very interesting. I, I want to see more from that because the, he, she almost is like treating treating him like a, a child that she knows is going to be very upset and obviously that comes from a place of, of love and understanding his trauma and the way that Joel reacts but it's also like is she just u- is she using Joel like is she just like obviously he's her muscle but uh, I think that's a very complex and complicated relationship which the the game explores a little and I get the feeling the show is going to explore a lot but I'm excited to see where that goes from there I also think very quickly. I want to mention th- this is where we're we're getting a a big change from the game in terms of Joel's motivation for setting off on this adventure. Yeah, it it I think this is a really good change because in the game, uh, Tess and Joel just hunt down Robert, who has made off with one of their shipments of guns that they have paid for and we're going to smuggle and, and sell to others. And they hunt Robert down, who reveals that he's sold the guns already to the Fireflies uh, and Tess and Joel kill Robert there because he's no longer of any use to them. That's obviously not what happens here. and We'll get into what happened to Robert here in a second. But this motivation of Joel wanting to get out to go find Tommy because he can, he's convinced he's going to die without him there uh, is a lot more interesting than okay, we're going to do this mission for the Firefly so we can get our shipment of guns back. I think that was a smart choice, and I I totally get where they were coming from on
0: that. Yeah, I very much like that choice. In the game, that storyline with Robert also kind of serves as your introduction to the game mechanics, so it, I guess in some ways, couldn't be as complex of a storyline, and so in the in the, the show, this was a much tighter way of tying all these parties together. And it was another good, not just a good addition, but a good change that they've made to the show. We are then introduced to the one and only Ellie. Tom, talk to us about Ellie.
1: Part four, Ellie. Uh, You probably heard the name if you heard of The Last of Us. The Fireflies, led by Marlene, who is portrayed by the original actress from the game, by the way, Merle Dandridge. Uh, are holding a teenage girl named Ellie Prisoner. And they're having to do a series of tests that involve counting to tens, sticking our her left hand, other things. Ellie is 14 years old. She's only ever known the life of after the outbreak. She never knew her parents. It's revealed that Marlene is the one that actually made sure Ellie was safe at Fedra's military school for orphans. We don't yet know why, but Marlene reveals that the Fireflies have a plan. They're trying to distract Fedra, leave as a group, take Ellie out west. Marlene tells Ellie, who is understandably upset and frightened about being detained, that she has a greater purpose than the Fireflies could have possibly imagined. The scene cuts before a crucial truth is revealed, one that we won't learn until Joel does. Uh, and Tess and Joel track down Robert. Before they find him, they find the corpse of an infected that is fully grown into the wall with disgusting and beautiful fungal growth that looks straight out of the game, only to find him already dead. He tried to sell the car battery which was no good, to Marlene, resulting in an off-screen shootout that killed Robert, injured Marlene, and decimated the Firefly crew. Joel is jumped by Ellie, who has a knife. Joel disarms her, and the two do not seem to take very kindly to each other. Marlene knows why Joel needed the battery. Joel is convinced that Marlene and the Fireflies turned Tommy against him, which you mentioned, which Marlene dismisses hilariously with an, okay, Joel. But Marlene is now in a rough spot. She has to get Ellie out, but she's hurt. Her crew is decimated, and in desperation, she turns to Joel and Tess, whom she is familiar with and knows what they're capable of, quote, for better or worse. Ellie, voice of the audience, is fascinated by that. What are they capable of? We're not going to find out just yet. If Joel can get Ellie to the old statehouse, the Fireflies will give Joel what he needs. Not just a battery, but a whole fueled-up truck, guns, and supplies to venture west to go get Tommy. Ellie quickly cracks the code of Joel's radio that he has to communicate with individuals named Bill and Frank. The radio playing a 60s song means they don't have anything new in terms of supplies. 70s, they got new stuff. And she tricks Joel into revealing that 80s means trouble. Ellie notices that Joel's watch is broken, the same one Sarah had once fixed for him 20 years ago. Ellie has never left the Boston quarantine zone and she's scared. She looks to Joel for reassurance that they'll be fine. And for the briefest of moments, the facade breaks, and Joel tells her that they will be. Joel wonders why it is that Ellie is so important. As Joel, Tess, and Ellie are sneaking out of the quarantine zone, they run into Lee, the dirty cop character. Joel and Tess try to negotiate with him to let them go. They'll split the ration cards with him. They'll give him all the ration cards if he lets them go. He barters further and is continuing to negotiate as he procedurally scans them, each testing them for signs of infection. Joel and Tess both go green, indicating they're clear. And as Lee scans Ellie, she stabs him. Lee grabs his gun, ready to shoot Ellie, but Joel jumps in the way. He flashes to that night, and we see one more image of Sarah uh, and that soldier pointing the gun at him. A soldier is standing in front of him with his gun pointed at a little girl. Instinct takes over, and Joel brutally beats Lee to death. And we can see Ellie is transfixed watching it happen. She's never had a protector like this before. She likes it? Maybe? We'll probably find out more. Tess grabs the scanner that Lee was using on Ellie. It's flashing red. She's infected, but she isn't. Ellie appears to be immune. She was bitten, but she claims it was three weeks ago and is showing no signs of infection, but there's no time to discuss. Joel, Tess, and Ellie have to hurry to get away from Fedra through a boundary fence, leaving the quarantine zone, and heading into a downtown area. Back at Joel's apartment, the radio from Bill & Frank plays the 1987 Depeche Mode song, Never Let Me Down Again. And 80s means trouble. As the music plays, we can see through a flash of lightning that two skyscrapers have collapsed on each other. And just before the credits roll, we hear, and if you look closely, you can actually see the source of some ominous clicking and screeching, teasing the horrors that will almost assuredly await in episode two.
0: Clickers are horrifying in every medium that they are on. We're introduced to Bella Ramsey as Ellie for the first time here. Um, I think she does a great job uh, as Ellie. The <laughs> it, It's the small things. It's her yelling, motherfucker. It sounds exactly like Ashley Johnson and Ellie in the game. It's just those small little mannerisms and moments that she absolutely picked up on. And she is Ellie. She's, she's funny. She's kind of spunky. But she is maybe a little bit angrier than the Ellie we know in the game. We don't have a lot of sample size, I guess, to go on with Ellie. But from what we've seen so far, this seems a lot like the Ellie we've seen in the video games.
1: Yeah, so that's that's my one note. Um, and I, this, this is the main thing with, with both Pedro and Bella that I'm excited about, which is you can see the core of the characters, but they're a little different in, in a few different ways. And, and one thing I'm wondering about is, is this maybe an angrier Ellie than Ashley Johnson's Ellie? She's, but, but I think part of that we'll have to wait and see because it would obviously be understandable if with someone that is being detained and forced to go places against her will and is scared. And uh, among other things that she would be a little angry or that she would process her emotions in a way like that. Um, So I, I'm not sure on that yet. I want to see more, but the aspect I, I'm most intrigued about with Ellie that appears to be different, at least as far as I've processed from the show is how that look she gave when Joel was beating the shit out of Lee. Yeah. That is Definitely not like the Ellie from the game, and I'm not complaining about that. I'm interested to see where that goes, but pretty, you know, you never see like a visceral reaction uh in that way of Ellie to violence in the game. And most of the time, just Joel kill someone brutally, and you just hear Ellie over your shoulder go, "Holy shit!" or yeah. something like that. um But this is a little different. I'm very interested to see where they go from that. J- Jacob, what did you what did you make of that choice? Where, where do you think they're going with
0: that? I mean, it was again from a cinematography standpoint her like sliding over as lightning is striking with this i mean it was a smirk on her face was noteworthy <laughs> as you kind of said it it was very interesting to see we don't ever really see Ellie when you're beating up people in the video game but as you said we get the little one-off lines throughout so maybe it is something similar we just see it this time versus hear it but it was certainly different. And if you compare it to Sarah early on in the show, when Joel has to kill Nana Adler as she's being chased down, Sarah's mortified and crying and as like a normal person probably would. And when now it is Joel killing not even a zombie, just a human, Ellie is appears to like it. There's a smirk on her face I think to a certain degree, Ellie likes having someone defend her like this. I don't know how many times she's had that in her life to this point. So it's, just, it's an interesting dynamic that it's going to be fascinating to see how it is approached moving forward. And it is certainly, I think, a bit of a change from what we see in the video game. There's also a bit of a humanization of Fedra. As I mentioned, the woman at the very beginning uh, telling the kid that everything's going to be okay, that they're going to get him favorite food and toys before, I mean, ultimately killing him. And then the dirty cop character is not something we have in the video game. It kind of adds a layer of consequence to kind of this violence that in the video game, Joel didn't have a relationship with any FEDRA officer like he does in this show so there wasn't this bartering that he tried to do while he's on his knees trying to get out of this situation it it adds this human element and it makes joel's decision to kill him all more impactful that this is someone he knows that earlier in the day he was talking to and now it's uh either him or me and he chooses him so this it was uh, uh, something that happens as a result of having a TV show, I think where you can flesh some of this out more and you get these types of moments where you're able to humanize people and it adds just more impact to the choices that Joel is going to make and, and Tess and Ellie are going to make throughout this series that there are people on the other side who are going to be affected by this. And that's not always something we got to see in the game just because of the nature. I mean, in the game, you are focused as Joel for most of the game. So you don't get that type of viewpoint. In a TV show, you're going to get that type of viewpoint. You mentioned as well, this uh, episode ends with Bill and Frank's uh, radio playing Never Let Me Down. It's a fun little way to show Ellie's uh, cleverness and, and wittiness and how smart she is for someone her age. That she opens it up, she sees this piece of paper, and she immediately cracks that it is a radio code. And then she tricks Joel into giving her the bit of information she didn't know. It's a a great mechanism to see or to show us how smart Ellie is and has become in this post-apocalyptic world. Music, though, Tom, is something that plays a, a big role in The Last of Us, though. Yeah, for sure, and p-
1: particularly in the second game and these are the types of changes especially I want to talk real quick about that customization of fedra which this is the the type of example of and for most of the audience, we're not getting way too in the weeds with changes that they're, that they're making from the show even though it's important to point out interesting things they're doing when adapting the source material this is a really good example of a small change that makes a ton of sense that does not mess with the story in a fundamental way this moment happens in the game where these soldiers catch Tess and, and Joel and Ellie and they're scanning him, and Ellie stabs someone right as right as they're scanning him. But it's not someone that Joel has a relationship with. It's it's not uh, anyone that we've gotten to know. It's just some some random soldier that's tired of this shit. Uh, and then as soon as Ellie does that, they seize the opportunity and kill them. And they turn this moment into something way more significant and resonant, which is Joel re- reliving that trauma and Ellie having this reaction to having a a new protector and Joel having to live with this consequence of this outburst of violence. he's sort of like, it seems like he's looking at his hands like, Oh God, I did it again. Uh, Which, you know, maybe implies that uh, some further previous actions that we don't know about, but it's these, it's these types of changes, which, have us really excited about the direction of this adaptation. It's not always going to be just a shot for shot, even though some cases they might lean on the source material. They're really looking ways to flesh this out in some ways that, that heighten the story and the characters and the narrative experience that we're all going on. So uh, I I just think that they're, they're doing a tremendous job with, with a lot of that stuff.
0: We have some awards we're going to give out at the end of each episode Tom, let's, uh, let's get your, this one is a little more straightforward this week, but we're going to have our best game moment brought to life each week called the baby girl award awards. Our baby girl. Yes. The the sweet,
1: precious thing that we would not change. They did it perfectly. It, it it holds a spot in our heart and they're like, Oh yeah, that's, that's, that's our baby girl right there. So Jacob, I, I want to go to you first. What What was your baby girl moment uh, of this episode what what did what did they absolutely get right that you would not touch a single thing on it
0: mean, it has to be what the award is named after um it's literally the baby girl moment with sarah's death we spoke about the importance of it they had to get it right they nailed every aspect of it i i think that has to be the award this week there's a couple other moments but i think it's i mean we named the award after it it has to be this yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna
1: go ahead and agree. This that, that's the cl- the clear winner. It's it's the most impactful moment of the first episode. It's one of the most impactful moments of the game, as I said. That is the the clear and obvious choice. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna just give an honorary shout out since you already took it. That one, uh, the credits and bringing back Gustavo for the score. I'm so glad they're not trying to do a different score. The the pensive acoustic guitar with those uh, classic themes. It. It works so perfectly. I'm so glad that they're they're leaving that. I wouldn't touch that. I, I wouldn't want to make any changes or bring in a new composer. So I'm super glad they're keeping
0: that. The best change, it's clearly something that's going to be a constant and not for the worse in this show, but a ch- the change, the best change they made from the video game to the TV show. Let's go with yours first. What, what did you think was the best change this week? I, I, I think it's the choice to... Uh, I I talked about it a little bit earlier. I
1: think it's Joel's motivations for wanting to leave the quarantine zone Uh, of it. Not just being, all right, let's go do this. Let's go get some more guns so we can have more guns to sell it. It's it's going back to the core of his character. Uh, He's scared that his brother hasn't talked to him in three weeks and he feels a desperate urge to go find him again. Not a question for Joel. He knows exactly what he needs to do. He's got to get that truck. He's got to go get Tommy or else he's going to be dead. Is that true? We'll find out. I'm not sure. But I think that's a much more interesting way for him to meet Ellie than to just sort of stumble upon her in his smuggling goods for guns. I, I think that's a much more interesting storytelling choice.
0: I mean, that's that's more or less what I had. Just kind of the Tess, Joel, Marlene type of storyline, the way they tie that all together, all of them getting in the same room and needing each other's help, uh, I thought that was a much cleaner way. I also wrote down Joel beating the hell out of the FEDRA officer is not something that is in the game, as we said, and it adds a layer of consequence and impact to the the situation and whether it is with, as you said, it seems like he's done this before, as well as Ellie's reaction to it as well.
1: Yeah, and they're they're doing a really good job of, making all the people in the show feel like people it's a very it, it sounds obvious couldn't tell you how many shows or movies i watch these days where it just like they don't they don't feel real uh, i think Andor did a great job recently also of doing this this is not an Andor podcast but i just want to give a quick shot for that show which was great um but yeah I, I think the humanization of fedra uh those extra relationships that make sense that weren't there those are all great change i want to also drop in my molotov hot take because i realized i forgot to do it earlier here's here's my hot take okay you ready oatmeal raisin cookies are good what is with the slander mm. they're tasty uh i get that maybe she didn't want one from the overly christian lady but i don't like this implication that maybe you know maybe she survived the uh, well she didn't survive but you know what i mean maybe she didn't turn into an infected because she she didn't want those uh those cookies, oatmeal raisin cookies are good. Damn it, that's, that's that's my hot take.
0: Look, all I'm saying is not eating oatmeal raisin cookies saved lives in this show. It if you're expecting chocolate chip cookies and get oatmeal raisin, it's even worse too. So I am
1: okay. But who 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 looks at a cookie and can't tell if it's oatmeal raisin or chocolate chip? Like you need better eyesight if <laughs> if that's if that's a problem you're running into.
0: The MVP of the week will do this for each episode. I'll give mine first. To me, I think this is a runaway. It's Nico Parker as Sarah, who, like I said, that was a very difficult character she had to play. And you have to fall in love with that character for that moment to really hit. And she absolutely nailed it. And she was absolutely fantastic in the opening 30 minutes of this episode. Hat tip to her. I I don't know if this is the last we'll see of her. I would assume so, but just incredible from her.
1: I I want to cheat so hard and name like four things, but I, but I can't. But I'm I'm gonna come back to Craig Bazin. And I, obviously, if you're experiencing this story for the first time, your answer probably should be Neil Druckmann, just because he he did this. This is his story, and, and he created it, and he's helping to perfect it with Craig Bazin. But for me, uh, and and for us, as as like fans of the story, but very interested in this show and this project and and how they're adapting it and the ways they're doing it. Uh, I could not have been more impressed with Craig Mazin's fingerprints all over this episode. We mentioned that prologue. Obviously he's making a bunch of interesting changes. Um, He is the reason that Pedro Pascal wanted to be in it, which I very easily could have named Pedro Pascal as the MVP too. I think the last of us fans are in very good hands with Craig Mazin at the helm. I think they would be in very good hands, even if for whatever reason, Neil Druckmann stepped away. He really seems like he gets it. He gets what's important to the story. And he also has creative ideas to flesh things out. So I'm, I'm going to give my MVP to Craig Mason.
0: It's a fair shout. They, they have absolutely hit a home run one episode in. That'll do it for the non-spoiler part of this week's episode. This is your hard line in the sand. If you don't want anything spoiled. Well, j- just real quick. Sorry. I just want to say, follow us on Twitter at Nerds if you haven't already.
1: We would love to hear from you. If you're listening to the show, if you're enjoying it, if you have questions, you have thoughts, you have feedback, feel free to give us a shout. That's the easiest way to reach us. Just at T-L-O-U nerds. Subscribe to us. Keep listening to the pod. That helps us a lot. Um, if you would leave us a, a good review, if you've enjoyed it, that would be so kind. We're still, you know, we're very new. We, we're not backed on any network or, or anything like that. We're just two buddies that like talking about The Last of Us and are excited about this show. Uh, so any review, this positive would mean quite a big deal for us. We would really, really appreciate it. Um, can't wait to, to to see it back here for episode two. But yes, I, I think we've said everything we need to say on that. This is your hard line. If you do not want any spoilers from the game of The Last of Us or The Last of Us Part 2, you made a decision that all video game knowledge is fair game. Get out now. This is your final warning. Okay, Jacob. I think the first thing we need to touch on is one of the ending points for the episode, which for a segment that uh, I, I want, I want to dub the crafting upgrade uh, of this episode. The one thing that I would maybe tweak a little bit just to see if I can make it better. We're probably nitpicking with a lot of these changes, but I want to talk about this Ellie's immunity reveal. Cause I feel like it's maybe the one part of the episode that didn't quite fully land for me and obviously that's for a few different reasons they made a choice to make this more about you know joel's trauma and uh ellie's fascination with that and that's obviously a very interesting note to end on but finding out that ellie has bitten and was immune is a big deal and we didn't really spend much time on it before the episode ends i'm confident we're going to get plenty of that but This is my my one note is is just spending a little bit more time on that. And again, this this indication that she is the hope for a potential cure for this cordyceps infection. I think that's so fundamentally important to the story. I'm I'm frankly a pretty surprised that they they got as far as they did and didn't include that tidbit. We almost nailed it exactly correct with with where we were sort of guessing the episode was going to end of you get all the way through Austin. You get Ellie, you find out she's potentially the cure. You're on this mission to get her to the fireflies. Uh, And like, that's the mission statement for the show. I was pretty surprised they didn't have that. But what did you think about sort of that choice?
0: I mean, they, they, I think pretty clearly opted for it to be a cliffhanger more than anything else that we don't even specifically know that she's immune in the show. We just know that she was supposedly bitten three weeks ago and her arm is healing from the bite marks, So it was interesting. It seems like the, I mean, it seems like they just simply kind of made a creative decision that we're going to leave this on a cliffhanger and address it next week, which I, I assume is going to be the very beginning of the episode. And a lot about that. And as you said, it's going to be, I I'm certain it'll be discussed. I do. I don't disagree that for as important of a moment and just a fact that like Ellie is the cure. They didn't focus on it at all in this episode, so it is an interesting decision. I I would also say, I mean, you you can pretty easily in in that moment in the show just be like there was panic. Everybody was rushed. They were trying to get out of there, but you can also just tack on theoretically 90 more seconds, another two minutes to where you just kind of – it sets into them that she is the cure – and just the weight of the situation, because as it is now, she they take off and no one, we're not even certain if Joel heard that she's the cure and immune. He seemed to be kind of in this uh, state of realization of what he just did more than anything.
1: Yeah, but but like that's also so. a few things I want to say that number one, I don't think it's much of a cliffhanger. I think oh, yeah. most most we didn't really talk about it too much, but I think most reasonable people could have deduced, OK, she's immune that's interesting uh, or she got bit and she didn't turn but so i don't think that's much of a of a cliffhanger but then also on your last point like that's literally what happens in the game is like they have that moment it sort of plays out like it did except for the changes we discussed um but then there's like a a second cuts a shorter cut scene like a few minutes later where it's like okay so like what like what what's going on like what's the deal and ellie's like they told me that supposedly like this is the key to finding a vaccine mm-hmm uh and Joel has like a disbelief i felt you know i don't know it, there was it's just a slightly weird choice i'm not complaining too much that's really just my main nitpick with the episode is i felt like i felt like the reaction well, granted again it was at 85 minutes so they were probably like okay we can't make we can't make this any longer <laughs> uh maybe maybe the scene was originally included in episode 2 and they had to cut it because they mashed these together to make two episodes i don't know all i know is just that's maybe just the one thing that didn't a 100% play how i would have liked it to in the premiere Um, But, you know, we're nitpicking.
0: There's a ton of Easter eggs in this, as expected. None made me happier than Curtis and Viper 2.
1: Curtis and Viper 2!
0: When... And I didn't even... It didn't even, like, connect when she's searching for the videos. And it wasn't until you kind of see what it is that... I am so happy that that's the little Easter egg they put in there. And that's the video they watch. I... If it's true to the game, that's going to come up later when you see a billboard for it. I I think it might be in Pittsburgh. I I absolutely love that. That was one of my favorite moments from the show. It's just those little Easter eggs for the people that played the game that I love so much.
1: Yeah, and and again, like the reason again, this is a spoiler spoiler section. We're spoiling stuff. Uh, the reason that it's it's such a fun Easter egg that like emotionally connected in a way that we wouldn't mention in in the earlier review is. Joel and Ellie later bond over these movies we learn. And even more heartbreakingly, Ellie wanted to, the the day that shit goes down at the start of the last of us part 2, she tells Dina she's thinking about inviting Joel over to a movie. And it isn't so much later in the game that we understand how significant of a moment that is that she's thinking of okay, I'm going to I'm going to try and rekindle this relationship that's been broken and we're going to try and bond over watching the second one of these cheesy action movies that joel loves um and that's so heartbreaking because as people that have played or, or know the second game that's the night joel dies so sarah dies watches curse and viper 2 with joel on the night that sarah dies and ellie's thinking about inviting joel to watch curse and viper 2 on the night that Joel dies. it's it's heartbreaking it's very sad uh, i love the little tidbit that joel was so excited about it having the deleted scenes <laughs> i love the little joke back and forth of, of like don't don't fall asleep and she's like oh how could i it's it's so riveting uh, and then she falls asleep that was it just it's very little details that warmed my heart and also broke my heart at the same time that's why we fucking love this property it's able to do that uh, absolutely loved it
0: i think this episode filled in a lot of blanks from the video game neil druckman said in an interview that a lot of this stuff was things that he already was going to add to the game, but that got left on the cutting room floor of the game itself. So I don't know specifically what was like already there, but there are parts of this that were already true to the character when they made the game. Uh, I, I love that they played the hits like on specific dialogue parts. They didn't change it drugs. I sell hardcore drugs. I was so excited to hear Ellie just pointing out your watch is broken when they're in the apartment together like it's just those small and they were they were sprinkled throughout but it would have been easy to not have those types of moments and the fact that they there's a lot of this dialogue that they they take just straight from the game and I specifically that Ellie and Joel scene where they're waiting on Tess in the apartment a lot of that was almost identical to that scene in the video game. So I absolutely loved that when they're in Austin, you there's a little bit of a fake out for getting T-boned that it's how it happens in the game. It's how they end upside down. It is obviously not how it happens in the TV show, but I love that. And another homage to those that played the game in that same scene. The Tommy help me line obviously was not in the game. Absolutely, a soul-crushingly great addition because it shows you that Joel feels helpless and Tommy has kind of a realization of what is happening and has accepted it, and to- and Joel has not. So, a lot of great additions, a lot of little moments paying homage to those that played the game what else stuck out to you from it a couple rapid fire things so jimmy uh
1: jimmy jimmy cooper was like the first infected we meet in the game who just shatters through the glass door that didn't happen cuz obviously they replaced that with the whole nana thing which i think definitely was an improvement um those were some good choices there but they they still they still give jimmy a shout out because he is now he's the new lewis who had the the farm on fire uh they said that was lewis's farm and now it's jimmy's farm so jimmy got a glow up he's a farmer He's still a more qualified farmer than Ellie. We'll get into that at a later date. Um, I love that. Uh, the Bill and Frank, obviously, they're this is not really Easter eggy, but just something that I'm excited about is obviously they're going to play a much bigger role. We've heard that there's a big uh, Bill and Frank episode that is supposedly incredible coming up. I'm excited to watch what that is and how that is because, again, Frank is dead in the game, um, and and Bill is just already yeah you know full bill by the time we see him so i'm I'm getting the sense we're going to see more stuff they're in trouble obviously that's interesting i want to see what that is about because bill's not in trouble when joel and ellie show up and and again bill's going to have a much different role to play obviously because well actually maybe not so maybe the so i guess they're probably going to find the fireflies and that truck's not going to be there so they'll still probably need bill for the car is the thing uh, i guess but i'm interested to see that the weeks ahead trailer. Oh man, it was so ex- you could see a shot of Henry and Sam, you could see Tommy, you could see Jackson, and place shots that looked like just straight out of The Last of Us too. Um, and most importantly, that final shot uh, of Joel, seemingly, I'm pretty sure, in the hospital. That trailer had me super hyped. I, I mentioned I that-, that that trailer made me way more hyped than like the legit official main trailer that came out. Um, but I'm super interested to see a lot of that like you said they did a great job playing a lot of the hits next episode We can talk a little bit about what we expect there
0: before we do that real quick there's two more things i wanted to touch on the line that marlene says was riley a terrorist and ellie's reaction was fantastic and it made me that much more excited for the riley episode whenever that comes because that connection is very clearly still there Let's look ahead to next week and what we think this is this episode is going to be. Our our kind of guess beforehand, since we already nailed the first one, was that this is them escaping Boston, getting to the Capitol building, and the ending is Tess dying. Is there anything that makes you think that's not gonna be how this next episode plays out?
1: I think it kinda has to be. Um We're we're obviously getting a bunch of clickers. Um and I'm excited to see people's first time reaction to clickers cuz I think I think that everything we see is like oh yeah, oh, yeah they're they're going to do clickers right this is going to be fun uh the noises sound great they're going to be creepy they're going to be scary um and I don't think the show's like scariness is is going to be like the biggest thing of it going forward obviously but I am interested to see how they do some of those more horror elements Neil is directing Neil Druckmann um interested to see his his uh his spin on it as well Um, yeah, no, I, I think they have to get to the episode. I I think that's, that's going to be, you know, they they might, they might, they might end it like on them setting off for, for bills right after, uh, test dies. But I think that's almost assuredly going to be the climax of the episode is, uh, test revealing she's infected, which we got, we got a few new details, uh, on that in terms of the timeline for infection, because the, the poster said, Getting bit in the head, five to fifteen minutes to full infection. Torso, arm, or shoulder, or hand, two to eight hours. Um, leg or foot, twelve to twenty-four hours. And she in the show, or in the excuse me, in the game, she's been in the neck. Uh, so it's kind of more
0: shoulder. So. But I mean, it is, it's just kind of,
1: okay. Right. Yeah. All right. Is, there's okay. not going to be a lot
0: of time that passes between her getting bit and revealing, you
1: know, you're right. You're right. It maybe is in the shoulder. So maybe that timeline still works right. Two to eight hours. Cause she's like, I was bitten an hour ago and it's already worse. Yeah. So maybe that does actually work a good point on, on, the, on the shoulder. But it, that was a cool little tidbit uh, that they, that, that they put just on the, uh, and And uh, my brother was wondering if this was something that actually was straight from the game because it kind of looks like a piece of lore that you would pick up in the game, which uh, is one of my favorite parts of storytelling that the game is able to do that the show can't really, but it was sort of a cool little kind of homage to that. But I think it has to be different because the line before that sticks in my head is everyone turned within two days, and this has clearly made the show's choice that like twenty four hours is the max like no one's getting no one's getting bitten and then not turning within twenty four hours. so I think that makes sense a, a twenty four hours seems like a natural sort of clock for that type of thing is the maximum but this feels like a really good spot to wrap it up um again if you've made it this far thank you we really appreciate you listening please follow us on twitter at tlou nerds please review the show leave it five stars or a good review if you would be so kind we would love to hear from you if you're listening to the show uh you know again we're a very small podcast so sometimes it can feel like we're just speaking out to the world and we're hoping someone's listening but if you've enjoyed uh, we would love to hear from you uh, and and uh, you know share share the pod if you know anyone else that has Last of Us and you know we're 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 getting some clickers next week so make sure you have a brick or bottle handy <laughs> uh, keep those tissues there just in case but uh, I'm excited this has been great I, I'm really looking forward to continuing to talk about this with
0: you Jacob this is going to be fun so I hope you guys continue to join us in this but for Tom this is Jacob signing off guys have a great week and we will see you next week.